It was last night that Pastor called me while Tracy and I, and I were uh, sitting at Olive Garden enjoying a salad, and uh, he texted me and said, hey, are you going to be there tomorrow? And uh, my phone was dying, so I took Tracy's phone, and I texted him back, and I said, well, I may be at another church, but I can be. And he said, well, I'm, I'm coughing every minute or so, and I'm not sure I can preach. I may need you to. So... I got a word uh, to preach uh, last night about 8 o'clock, and uh, Tracy and I finished our meal, and, uh, and we did a little bit of Christmas shopping that we had to do because we both work retail and have pretty long hours. And so I got home at about 9 o'clock, and I was sitting on the couch, and I was exhausted, and about 9.30, I looked at Tracy, and I said, hey, I just remember something. I'm preaching tomorrow morning. <laughs> and I said, I got to get along with the Lord. So uh, she went on to bed, and I was up into the night, and... Uh, I think God's given me a word. I know God's given me a word. Uh, even this morning, he was giving me um, application and illustration. So <clears throat> I want to start out just by talking a little bit about Christmas and some of my Christmases and uh, a really interesting thing God's done in the text. So we'll see where the Lord goes with this. So, Lord, we're, we're depending upon you. Without you, uh, this will not succeed. So, Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would just permeate this place and magnify your name. Uh, it was when I was a little kid that I started enjoying Christmas, and uh, I'll never forget some of those Christmases. Uh, my parents loved me uh, deeply, and you know, my mom always made sure that the girls had great Christmas. My dad kind of took care of me along the way, and so I'll share with you two or three of these. One, one, one Christmas, I remember uh, my dad did something incredible. Uh, I don't know how he did this. Uh, I was probably, uh, I don't know how old I was, second, third grade. And Christmas morning, you know, I walked into the living room and there were plywood sheets of wood that had been fastened together. And attached to the plywood was a slot car racing track six inches wide with more curves than could be imagined and uh, four cars that were about this long with the big motors. And Dad had turned our house into a slot car racing track. And I can never, I'll never forget that experience and unhooking those sheets of plywood and sliding them under the bed. And uh, that was one of the greatest Christmases. But, you know, the problem with that uh, particular gift is that the uh, uh, axles get burned up from the hair that sisters leave in the floor when they brush their hair. And it burns the motors up and clogs the wheels up and eventually the cars are no good if you have sisters in the house. Now, if you have brothers, there's not a problem with that. So eventually, after a couple years, uh, cars are no good. You can't find cars to match the track, and suddenly, you know, you have a, a ton of debris in your bedroom that you have to find a way to dispose of. I remember another morning when I was, uh, I got up on a Christmas morning. It was a really hard year. It's probably my fifth or sixth grade year, and fifth or sixth grade is a tough year. And uh, dad and mom knew that it was a really hard year for me. It was tough in school and tough with my friends. We lived in the country, and there was no guys my age within a few miles. And uh, it was just hard to get together and play basketball or flag football because most of the guys lived in the city, and I'm out in Poduckville. So uh, I got up in the morning, and there wasn't very many presents on the tree, and which wasn't a big deal to me. And dad said, son, it's a little cold outside. Why don't you go see how cold it is? And I was like, dad? Well, okay, so I got up and I walked through our living room on the front of the house and on the front porch. And I thought, yes, yeah, it's a little chilly, but there's no rain and there's no snow. 
I turned around to walk back in, and as a fifth or a sixth grader, I saw a red and gray Honda 50 Mini Trail sparkling and shining with a bow on the handlebars. And I almost had a come apart on the spot. Now, you have to understand that my dad uh, was a barber, and he was only making around $100 or $150 a week at the time. And uh, Daddy would wear the same pants five days in a row so we could have clothes, and Dad grew a two-acre garden that I helped him uh, uh, raise. And uh, he built our own house, and he worked on our own cars, and he would plumb and wire. And uh, we just didn't have a high income, though we had a pretty good standard of living. It's because Daddy was so industrious. So when I saw that mini trail, you know, tears filled my eyes, and I realized the incredible sacrifice that my father had made for me, which he had to have been planning for a very long time. I got on that mini trail, and I rode that thing all over creation. I got permission from the farmers next door to put tracks in their soybean fields and through their corn patches, and I had mini trail uh, tracks all over creation. Uh, but, you know, one day, about three years later, uh, they had burned off the sage field behind, beside the house. It was three acres wide. And I noticed there was a trail leading from our utility room of where the ashes were that was turned beige, and there was no ash. And it went all the way down to Peachtree Orchard Road, about a quarter of a mile down. I thought, what an odd thing. The next day, I went to fire the mini trail up, and it was gone. And that was a track of where they had stole it without a key and they'd had to drag the rear wheel through the ashes of the burned field. And my mini trail was stolen. It was gone. I also remember this time when my sister, I was probably third grade, incredible Christmas, my sister Shirley, my oldest sister, gave me the first box of Legos that I ever had. It was wonderful. I opened the box up and there's gears and sprockets and blocks and tracks and I just... I started building, and I think I went into my room and shut the door, and being an introvert that I am, I didn't need to see anybody for a week anyway. I just built with Legos. But, you know, when you have Legos for a while, after a year or so, the dogs chewed some up, and, and some get sucked up by the vacuum cleaner, and the one key sprocket or gear you have to have to build the backhoe disappears, and then your cousins stick them up their nose, and you don't ever play with them again, and you throw those away. And Lego... There comes a point when the gift is, you can't do what, you have to keep on replenishing. Have you ever noticed you've got to replenish parts to Lego to keep building the same things you do? I got to thinking about gifts and what the Lord had done for me. What's, the, what's one of the greatest gifts I know of? Well, when Tracy and I got married, uh, you know, I was 165 pounds, tall, six foot one, slender and dark. Tracy was skinny as a rail and she had a neck this long and beautiful piercing blue eyes and she was just drop dead gorgeous and I can you know that wedding day you know it's a marvelous gift and the doors open and then she sees me in my tux and almost faints and falls out because I was so handsome that day <laughs> but no really the doors open she was so gorgeous I thought I cannot believe I'm marrying this woman she didn't almost faint and fall out that's exaggeration but, you know, I'm older now, and I've got a pot belly, and I've got things that hang over back here, and her hair's turned gray, and my hair's turned gray, and we love each other, but we don't look like quite the same people we were when we got married. Things change over time. Well, how about what the Lord gives us? What kind of gifts does the Lord give us? I think one of the most spectacular passages, which nobody would ever associate with Christmas, is in Peter's writing to a group of people that were in an incredible situation. 
You see, there were some hillbilly fishing people that lived on the north shore of Asia Minor. Today we call it Turkey. And those people had a hard life and they were blue-collar kind of dirt under their fingernails people and they were not very well educated. And the empire never cared too much about them. As a matter of fact, Paul, the brilliant philosopher trained by Gamaliel, Hebrew of Hebrews, great church planter, was on his way one day to go to Kibasatia and Bithynia and, and Pontius, and he was going up to plant churches in that, those fishing villages in the hills, and the Spirit of God, the book of Acts prevented him from going there. And so he went over to Troas on the, on the western shore of what is today Turkey, and there he had a vision at night. It was a Macedonian vision. He saw a man in Macedonia calling out and saying, Come over here, come over here. So Paul and his young protege Timothy, half Jew and half Greek, not coincidental because Paul's about to do Greek church planting, which he never knew that he was going to do. And there was young Timothy, the perfect protege that spoke the Greek language, could incorporate him into Greek context. And they never went to Pontius, Galatia, and Bithynia. But do you know who did? Of all the disciples, guess who God sent to the rednecks on the north shore of Asia Minor, today's Turkey, the fishing villagers and the backwoods, blue collar. But guess who he sent? Peter. Now, why did he send Peter? Because Peter was one of them. Now, he's not from Asia Minor, but he was raised on the Sea of Galilee, and he was an old fisherman that was schooled. He was impetuous, and he opened his mouth before he should have, and he jumped in before other people would. And, and it was there that um, Peter wrote a group of people that suddenly were suffering. They were aliens. They had come to Christ. The culture was rejecting them. The local city was rejecting them. They were no longer... The, the, they're not fitting into the rural culture, and you know how it is when you're in the sticks and suddenly you start living a different kind of life than everybody else, and you get ostracized, and then Rome had begun to persecute them and take away their independence and their land and separate their families. And Well, Peter decided to write them a letter. And in that letter, uh, in the English Bible, it's the letter of First Peter. It reads as follows. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, or it could be translated uh, the chosen ones because really it is in a nominative case, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sprinkling work of the Spirit to obey Christ with His blood, may grace, mercy, and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, 
even though tested by fire, it may be found as a result of praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. This is an incredible opening to a book that is probably the greatest theological treatise on suffering written in the entire Word of God. There is no book that more closely identifies with suffering. There is no theological uh, pericope in the New Testament that is more powerful than the combined arguments in First Peter about how to endure suffering. So when he's writing these aliens who have been scattered all over, Pontius and Galatia and Bithynia and whatnot, he starts his book by reminding them of who he, who he is. Peter, an apostle. Apostle is the Greek word apostolos. It means one who is commissioned, sent out, an official representative. It could be translated ambassador or missionary. In the strictest sense of the word, in the strictest sense of the official word, apostle is one of the, the disciples who walked with Jesus that was personally called by him that were authorized to pen uh, inspired language into the Bible. It was those initial church leaders, but the, the word in a wider sense could be used today of, an, of a missionary or a representative or an attache or an ambassador. And that word would fit perfectly. So Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, the, Jesus being man, Christ being Messiah, the anointed one, the apostle of the God-man. To those who reside as... Now let me tell you something. In most English Bibles, <clears throat> the phrase who are chosen or chosen ones or elect ones uh, does not occur in this Bible where it would in this particular passage. The, the word chosen or electois occurs as the fifth word in the book of First Peter. It's the very fifth word in the book of First Peter. So when you're reading First Peter and you come to that phrase, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen, even though in my New American Standard who are chosen comes at the very end of verse 1, and they do that so they can tie it to verse 2 according to the foreknowledge of God, that is not in the Greek manuscripts where that word occurs. It's early on. And I tell you this because some people think that Peter is making a comment that they're chosen for salvation. But the point in Peter's writing is that they have been chosen by the foreknowledge of God to be sprinkled as aliens across Bithynia, Pontius, and Galatia. It is... Peter's purpose to let them know that God is not unaware of their circumstance, that the Lord understands exactly that He has sprinkled them in the diaspora that happened from Jerusalem when the Jews were spread out all over and believers were, were ran out of Jerusalem for fear of their very life, that God was in control, that sovereign God had chosen to sprinkle them through His foreknowledge into those communities. So just so you can understand it clearly. That verse 1 is, he's writing to those aliens who have been sprinkled and scattered, chosen ones who have been put there by the foreknowledge of God. An alien is a foreign-born resident in a country who is not naturalized. An alien is a foreign-born resident who has not yet been naturalized. They are outsiders who struggle with relating and fitting in due to their unique culture and values. They 
speak a different language. They enjoy different entertainment. They have their own worldview. The Greek word parapedesos means one living alongside of sojourner, a, one, a person of temporary residence, a foreigner staying momentarily in a strange place. It's always used in the New Testament and early Hebrew writings and Greek writings of short-term settlers passing through, never, never, never used of a person who's an, uh, a foreigner who's intending to stay. It, it's someone who does not have a deep attachment to the sphere they're in, but they have an affection and a passion attached to a place where they are not living. Peter is writing to aliens who have been sprinkled and scattered throughout Asia. Some commentators think that he means alien because they are Jews who were from Jerusalem or Israel and now they're living in Asia Minor. Well, maybe so. But there's a greater meaning here. As we see through the rest of the book, he is not simply talking about Israelis who are now living in Asia. He's talking about God called Christ followers who have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ, who have been born again, who are now embedded into a culture that neither loves, respects, or accepts them. He's talking about people who are aliens. They're members of the kingdom of heaven, but they're living in a country that's wicked, perverse, immoral, that's pornographic, that's adulterous, that are liars and drunkards, that are homosexuals, that are reprobate in their thinking, that are sensual, that are, that are... He's talking about people like you and I who have the Spirit of Christ indwelling us as a gift given to us, who are for a temporary period of time living on this rock spinning through space called earth in which we do not belong, in which we do not share their values or their virtues because we have been inhabited and indwelt with the spirit of a holy God and he's indwelling our temple and that mobile temple walks on this earth in our presence as we represent Christ and his will and we're an alien who no longer fit in to the place do you feel like you fit in at work scripture says those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will experience persecution so if we fit in real well and we're not persecuted we're not living holy lives because we're oddball strangers. We're people who don't agree with the people around us. We're folks who have a higher set of values, who exude the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And we do not live in drunkenness and mal malice and division and faction and immorality and sensuality and carousing and night parties and debauchery and lasciviousness and, and envy and, and jealousy and sensuality and we don't bask in our own lust. We don't live and walk and breathe and enjoy the entertainment that this world enjoys because we're foreigners. We're temporary uh, pilgrims passing through. We're, so we're sojourners that don't belong here. And Peter is writing these people in this country that are under so much cultural persecution and he's going to tell them about a gift that they've been given.
John Gruden, a theologian commentating on this foreknowledge of God that has sprinkled them, writes this. Since verse 1 contains no verb, it is most natural to let, quote, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, modify the situation of the readers described in verse that they are chosen sojourners of the dispersion in Pontius and Galatia, etc., according to the foreknowledge of God. This implies that their status as a sojourner, their privileges as God's chosen people, even their hostile environment in Asia, where they all know... Uh, uh, where they're all known by God before the world began, all came out in accordance with His foreknowledge, and thus, as we may conclude, all were in accordance with His fatherly love for His own people, and such foreknowledge is laden with comfort for Peter's readers. And I agree with Gruden. Very few commentators will agree, but there are a few. You see, I believe that Peter is writing not to tell them that they've been elect and chosen in before the foundations of the world, that, they've, that God's damned some to hell and chose some to go to heaven and you won the booby prize, you get to be blessed. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is, as I think, Peter is saying, look, sovereign God loves you. He sprinkled you with His blood. He's allowed you to be scattered throughout the diaspora all over Pontius Galatia and Bithynia from his own foreknowledge and that he's sovereign God in control, that God is not alarmed and amazed that you're suffering. He's not shocked that you don't fit in. He's not wringing his hands in heaven going, oh no, they're not in Jerusalem. They're living with all these lost pagan people. Rome's after them. Their neighbors hate them. Their, their income is diminishing. They're getting fired from their job because of their faith. What if I'd, I don't believe that's God? I believe God the Father allowed them through His foreknowledge to be sprinkled across, to be chosen ones who are put in pagan cultures, in jobs where they don't fit in. And that the key is not to get out of that bad situation. The key is to learn how to live a Spirit-filled life and understand God's purpose in allowing you to be dropped, parachuted, airborne rangers, special forces of the kingdom of heaven, dropped into an environment that's caustic and oppressive and frustrating that you don't fit in and you don't agree and you can't find commonality with people because holy God has placed you in a place where you're a missionary on a mission to manifest the presence of a holy God. Wow. What an opening to a book. What an opening to a book. Verse 3. Well, let's talk about the sanctifying work of the Spirit this way. What, why, does, why does Paul, in the middle of talking about their being sprinkled and scattered into this pagan environment, why does he talk about the sanctify? What does sanctify mean? It means it's set apart to empower to live differently. By, how, how were they placed there? By the sanctifying work of the Spirit as they are sprinkled with the blood of Christ. By the sanctifying... While you are temporarily in this messy world, exercise your empowerment and allow the Spirit of God within you as you obey Him to convict and direct you as you surrender to the process of becoming exclusively separated unto Him as sanctified to a holy God. Romans 6, 19, 22, 1 Corinthians 1, 30, 1 Timothy 2, 15. This is how you are to live as an alien who's scattered in... It's how you can survive in a bad scenario. It's the sanctifying, empowering work of the Spirit of God within you. Not only has God known their current plight in the past, 
He has provided them with the means to walk victoriously in the midst of a hard providence. The work of the Spirit was not an action of choosing them by sanctification before time began unto salvation. The term simply doesn't fit. There is no past tense action in the Greek language here. What is being accomplished by the Spirit is the current ongoing sanctifying action and power of Asian Christians being empowered to walk in holiness in the midst of persecution and abuse and against this uh, prepositional phrase and the one which follows will modify the whole plight of the reader's circumstance. To obey Christ Jesus is the point of this text. Here we also have the phrase, the sprinkling of His blood. The blood of Christ is not only given us forgiveness for past sins, but for present and future sin, and our failures that occur during hard providences do not stand against us eternally. They're washed away and forgiven. Christ desires restoration now and fellowship. Therefore, if you fail at some traumatic point in your life with your husband, wife, child on the job, you can be forgiven because you have been sprinkled with His blood. Christ's blood pours over you. You're drenched in it. When the Father sees you, He sees the Son. If you have a failure, this work on the job. If you've blown up at your husband or wife or child, fear not. Agree with God that it's sin. You're washed in the blood of Christ. You're restored in fellowship. And you can be 100% anointed and used today and this next week. The sprinkling reference here is likely that of the leprous cleansing rituals of the Old Testament where the child of God who had become unclean with leprosy could be sprinkled with blood if he was cured and restored. This view keeps the pattern true. Number one, the father knowing salvation in flight. Two, the spirit sanctifying. Three, the child obeying. Four, defiled child restored to fellowship. And five, peace given derived from the knowledge of that favor. It is Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, particularly uh, verse 6 and 7. Get this picture of the sprinkling of the blood. I'm an Old Testament leper. I've got this disease, my skin is numb, so when I sleep, I don't know rats are gnawing on it, so I wake up and a finger's gone. It's not that leprosy causes my finger to fall off, it's that leprosy numbs my body and so I can be gnawed on at night, and therefore you lose limbs and whatnot. Leprosy was an insidious disease, it was a terrible thing, but people were healed from it. When they were healed from that leprosy and they got their feeling back and the boils went away, they could go cry out to the priest, and in Leviticus, the priest could come to the person and look at them and say, hey, well, miraculously, marvelously, it's beyond explanation, but according to my view of your health as a priest, I'm going to declare you clean. He would take them into the temple, do the spirit rites, take the blood, sprinkle it on them. They would then uh, walk out in the community. The priest would pronounce, this person is no longer a danger to society. They're acceptable for fellowship. Embrace them as your brother. And then the person who had been leprous, Woo, I can live with my family again. I can shop in the marketplace. I can be a member of society. I'm no longer a cast out. I'm no longer living with the dregs of society. I'm not thrown out into the, the byways and into the caves. And, and, but now, we have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. And where we were in sin and we were cast out and we were bound to hell, now we have been forgiven. And in the blood of Christ, we can cry out, we're clean, we're accepted, we're part of the body, we have fellowship. This sprinkling of the blood allowed these foreign aliens and strangers to live in a way that empowered them to have joy. Look at verse 4. Uh, well, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. The first two verses, uh, Peter places the players on the stage. He has the all-knowing Father, the bloody Christ, the empowered spirit of holiness, the alien, outcast, strong believers, and the adversarial kingdom of the world. They're all the players on the stage. What an opening for a book dealing with suffering. The Father is not surprised. The Son is ever interceding. The Holy Spirit is extending power and wisdom while the struggling soldier of the cross is promised favor from the Creator of all things and guaranteed peace and stability in the fiercest battle. This praise uh, that he's offering has to do with the value of Christ. Then he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I read Scripture and I read that word, Blessed be the God and Father. You see it all over Scripture. What does blessed mean? Why does the, the biblical writer always put in, blessed be the Lord? Listen, blessed is that Greek word, eulongaton. Uh, its root meaning is speaking of someone or to praise someone's nobility. It's like giving someone a eulogy at a funeral except before they're dead. It's when you say all the good things about a person. The title, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is in view of this term, um, who has caused us to be born again. Uh, our new birth is not the result of our working. It's not the result of our conforming. It's not the work of our performing. It is solely because God intended to pursue us first and then secure a salvation after we had repented with belief. What occurred was the deposit of a new life and a new nature. So the author saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy... Why? Because we deserve a burning hell. And He interjected Christ to spare us out, so that is indeed great mercy. And has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope. What do we know about things that live? Well, they're small to begin with. And then they grow, and they get wider, and then they begin to produce, and then they begin to bear fruit. This is a living hope. that you Have you ever thought about the fact that you have a living hope? What does that mean to you, that you have a living hope? It means that, you're, first of all, your hope is alive. Christ is alive. He's resurrected. It also means that it's a hope that is growing. It is a hope and a faith that is maturing, as the Scripture says, from faith to faith, as the just shall live by faith. Your hope is rooted in a living God, but your hope is changing. Your hope is getting greater and deeper. I'm going to show you how your hope can get deeper this morning. Living things go through a cycle. Um, this new life in Him yields a living hope, growing, expanding comprehension, increasing maturity. Our hope is alive and is growing. Peter, like Paul in many of his letters, is attempting to explain to his audience the comprehension of who God is by elaborating on what great things he has done for his alien band and by exploring what motivated him to do these things. Then he goes on to say, through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, our new life is rooted in his resurrection, for it is this resurrection that ensures ours and is our resurrection that is the doorway to realizing this yet-to-be-seen facet of salvation. Therefore, we hope through his resurrection in our born-again status. Now here it comes, folks. Here comes the Christmas present. Verse 4. 
to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. Did you get that? It is undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. Say this with me. Which is imperishable. Say this with me. Which is imperishable. Imperishable. Say it with me. Imperishable. Louder. Imperishable. I have been given gifts at Christmas, but those gifts could perish. They could wither. They could be destroyed. But this gift that Christ has given you, I'm here to tell you, is imperishable. It will never break. The cogs on the gears will never wear out. It will never cease to do what it has been promised. It is imperishable. It has durative, lasting value. All kinds of things are sold in North America. And they wear out. You have to put tires on your car. Begins to leak oil. You get it the first day. Woo! But then 10 years later, man, I got to trade this sled. What happened? What happened? You move in your house. Oh, I got a new house. You know, eight years later, I've got to paint this entire house. I've got termites. I got to replace a window. How do I get the window out and stick another one in with it out leaking? There's hell on the roof. Oh, man, I've got to have a new roof. Call the insurance company. Everything that we have in this life is imperishable except for what Christ has given us in our inheritance. Inheritance. To obtain an inheritance which is... An inheritance, listen to me. How many of you have parents? Are you that slow? Does anybody here not have parents? Okay. Listen. Listen. An what is an inheritance? My dad passed away. Okay, my dad passed away in 2000. Love him, great man. Oh my goodness, how I miss him. I still feel him in my heart at Christmas. I can see his face. I can hear his voice. Love my dad. Everything in my dad's estate transferred to my mother. My mother is in her 80s. She's dealing with memory loss. I do not live in Fayetteville, Tennessee, so we have elected to make my oldest sister executor of her estate. In the meantime, she's taking care of her, making sure her bills are paid. I love my mom, but I'm five hours away. When she dies, the executor of her estate will assume responsibility to distribute the benefits of her death, which is just a terrible thing to even say. Benefits of a death. That's an oxymoron. I'd rather have my mom than her stuff. Benefit, that the executor is going to transfer the benefits of the death and inheritance. Can I tell you something? How many times in the car business or in the business I'm in have I seen parents die and kids fight over an estate? How many times have I seen an executor pervert the will and abscond with funds out of that inheritance? That happens all the time, ladies and gentlemen. Because the person who intended for it to go a certain way is dead, and the judge cannot walk up and say, Now listen, how exactly did you want this to go again? Your executor's kind of making it seem like what your kids aren't saying. and Well, they're dead. They can't respond. It's like, there's no answer from the grave. 
Ladies and gentlemen, can I tell you, we have an imperishable gift of God because the one who died to give us our benefits is alive and he is his own executor. He defends his own right and his will and he's a God of the universe and what God's given you, nobody can take out of your hands. Top that Christmas present. Not only did He die for you to give you the benefits of a death and wash you of sin and grant you eternal life, standing in eternity, a place in the kingdom for all ages to be a joint heir with Him, to stand with Him, but He lives to defend your right to ensure that you will never lose an eternal promise. It is imperishable. Don't ever forget it. It is imperishable. Not only is it imperishable, it is undefiled. It is undefiled. And, and here, we not only have been born into a living hope, but also to obtain an inheritance. And it is that inheritance which is the object of the living hope, which is your share of the inheritance of the kingdom as a joint heir of Christ. You have an inheritance waiting for you, served in a bank that cannot be robbed. Inheritance. It is that which is received legally into a person's ownership by virtue of the death of a bloodline predecessor. It is not the result of our doing. No inheritance is the result of our doing, nor is the inheritance in Christ the result of our doing. But by Him who has gone before us, who has died, and unlike any other dead donor, His resurrection ensures that we can both enjoy our life within His wealth and enjoy Him. Unlike all other donors, because of their resurrection, He Himself can execute His will perfectly and protect that result from any deviancy. Imperishable. I will translate that word unalterable. Unalterable. It's the Greek word aphartan, uh, imperishable, incorruptible, constant, not subject to decay, erosion, or elements unaffected by time. It's, uh, it's unaffected by anything. It's the state of the resurrected body will not be subject to... Listen, the body that you're going to have is not subject to sickness, decay, attack, assault, injury, or poison. This new body that you and I, we're going to all have one, and I'm ready for it right now. I mean, I got bad knees, I got a bad heart, my eyesight's going, I got a landing street, I got a bald spot back here, I've got receding hair, I'm ready for the new body. Are you? Hey, when you get it, it is an unchangeable, unalterable condition for eternity. Now, can I tell you, that's good news. Now, if you're 12 years old, that doesn't mean a lot. But if you're old and ugly like most of us, it means a lot. This inheritance. There'll be no need in the kingdom for a state of the kingdom address. It'll be beyond, the kingdom will be beyond attack, revision, erosion, destruction, our citizenship is secure. What must these suffering, scattered aliens thought in regard to their own life, property, society, and, and nationality as they heard these words? They started, instead of looking at the position they were in in Asia Minor, they started looking at the kingdom. Their position, condition, dwelling, and body were beyond the reach of their adversaries, their neighbors. Their eternity was beyond the reach of Rome. They were totally secure and needed to relax. How about you? Relax, folks. This life is a handbreadth. It's over with. And then we got 10 million years with Christ. Not only is it imperishable, it is undefiled. It's free from sinful, sinfulness. It's the word amanatan. It's un, uh, amantan, I'm sorry. It's undefiled, untarnished by sin, containing nothing unworthy of God's full approval and acceptance. 
the injustice, the cruelty, the threats, the persecutions that they were, were very real in the life of these alien strangers living in a foreign land were but temporary. For, for their land, the kingdom they would receive that they would inherit soon would be free of all such behavior as their new body would also have no temptation from such things. They're reading this letter realizing that they're but a, but a handbreadth from a new realm. It is Peter's task to call them to live by the guidelines of the kingdom while sojourning through this land. Ladies and gentlemen, not only is our gift, not only is the protected inheritance undefiled, unalterable, but, I mean, but it is undefiled. It is without any putridness within it. Hey, I've gone to the refrigerator sometimes and I've gone to, to grab some milk and I poured it out and I turned it up and all of a sudden I realized what? Woo! It's been in there too long. It's putrid. You go to eat an apple. You got, I love Fuji apples. Got a ton of them in the bottom. I get the last one, take a bite out of it. Oh, man. Why? It doesn't last. It's defiled. There's something in it that turns it bad. There's something in culture you know, every, you know the United States has the longest standing constitution in 7,000 years of human history. No other constitution has lasted as long as ours. And ours won't last either. Why? Because humanity is depraved and defiled. We can't build anything perfect. And if Christ doesn't come back, this nation will fall. I'm sorry, it's the truth. It will happen. But in the kingdom of God, His kingdom will have no little bit of any seed of evil or wrong that will fester into something that could eventually topple the kingdom of Christ. How about that? Thirdly, not only is it undefiled, but it will not fade away. It, it is undiminishable, maintaining full glory, doesn't grow dim, keeps its luster. It will last. All things tend to become commonplace after. I was in Atlanta as a young division manager for a division of Bell South. One day I went and I lost my mind. I bought a Porsche. Woo, I'm driving a Porsche. I'm 24, 24, 25 years old, division manager for Bell South, tooling around in a Porsche. Sit in at the first day. Woo, smell the leather. Look at the shine on the car. Rev engine. Ah. Hey, two months later, can I tell you a secret? It's like any other car. It just gets you to work. You know, and then you have a problem with it. You know what it costs to change a head gasket on a Porsche? It's insane. I'm like, what in the world have I done? Listen. Nothing lasts. Nothing. There's no, you, you, you get a house, it's great. But then after you had a while, oh well. I'd love to have this one, that one. You always want, listen. This word, you got to understand this Greek word, what it means. When it says it will not fade away, it's not meaning imperishable. Because that's already been said. It means that the moment when I saw my wife and they swung those doors open at the wedding, when my soul went up here and I'm like, oh my goodness, what an incredible, I can't believe this is about to happen. Listen, a year later, I viewed marriage a little differently. Huh? Come on, be honest. Nobody's perfect. Here's all I'm saying. When we see Christ... That incredible joy that we experience the first time you see the, the Porsche, the first time you see your husband. It, what, what, whenever the kingdom comes and that, whoo, it's on now. I cannot believe I made it. Lord, this is real. I've walked by faith and here we are. Everybody else that didn't believe are fools. They're banished. But Lord, it's a, a million years from now, we'll never be 1% of one degree less excited about who Christ is or our position because what God has given us doesn't fade. 
Let that sink in. Every other joy in life begins to drop and bring you back to average, not with the kingdom, not with our inheritance. I've got a million more things to say, but I don't have time, so let me wrap this up. Who are protected? It is reserved in heaven for you. No one can take it away. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation to be real. Your faith in Christ is what has enabled you to have this inheritance. When you believe that it was so, it became so because God said it was so. And now it is so and it's yours and it can never be changed. So as you've been saved by faith, so walk in it and believe it. And in this you greatly rejoice. And that's, that word in the Greek language means an out of this world kind of joy. You greatly rejoice. A joy that nobody in this world can understand. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, we're distressed by various trials. Yeah, we're going to be tested. Well, why does the Lord let us be tested? Here it is. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though now you're tested by fire, tested by fire, may become to the found of the uh, result in the praise and glory of Christ. In the Old Testament, I mean, during these days, and I'm going to close right here, y'all. But hear me. You have been given an, impre- an incredible gift in Christ. A living hope with a living executor, an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, unalterable, will not fade away, cannot be taken away from you. But now for a little while, for a little while on this earth, you've got to live by faith and be willing to suffer for the gospel. Because it's now that you're going to be put, back then they had a way that they smelted gold ore. They put the ore down in a tasconium vat. It's a, a vat about this big made out of tasconium clay. It was only clay that could withstand the temperature that would melt ingots and ore. And so this clay-colored, like flesh, tasconium vat, you know, Paul said we have this treasure in earthen vessel. I mean, we're a clay vessel. This is our flesh. It's a tasconium vat. looks like flesh. They'd fire the heat up under it, big fire, and the ingots would melt down. They'd pour the dross off, and there would be gold left in the bottom. And then they would either take the gold out, or they would shatter the tasconium, shatter the flesh, and then there's the pure gold, the pure faith. Let me read this verse again. In this you greatly rejoice, even though for a little while, if necessary, turn the heat up, you've been distressed by various trials. The fire's burning, and the flesh, the tasconium, is enduring. So that the proof of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that which is in the vat, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be the found a result in what? The praise and glory of our Father to revelation of Jesus Christ. We have this incredible inheritance, which you have been given this incredible gift, but for a little while, hey, it's not Christmas Day yet. And the gifts... It's all there, and it's going to be there, and we know it's going to be there, and we're going to, we believe it so much, we're going to run underneath the tree and look that morning, right? But you don't open it until Christmas Day. But until then, you've got to live in a relationship to the one giving. Because you know they love you, and they're making a way for you. Here's what I'm saying. Our million, bazillion year inheritance, which is so incredible, is so awesome, that this little bit of suffering and trial we go through here is no more than what a newborn baby gets when it has its first inoculation. Yes, it's painful, but it's so brief and tiny and it has such a huge effect that it's infinitesimally, uh, ridiculously small and meaningless in light of the life that child will live. And from now until your grave is such a short little period of inoculation. Just do what you got to do to walk with God because that little inoculation is what allows you to have Protection from sin through all eternity. And the little handbreadth of this life is nothing compared to the eternity. 
God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, as a little baby to live and grow and to die for you. To give you the gift of an inheritance maintained by a living executive that is undefiled, undiminishable, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Are you thankful for that gift? Hey, I'm not really calling for great repentance today. All I'm doing is saying this. Thank the Lord Jesus for the gifts you've been given and live in light of what He has given you through eternity. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we thank You for Your grace. Lord, how You have loved us. God, there are not enough words to explain how You have so drowned us with Your grace. But Lord, we are thankful. Father, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would fall on us. Lord, that we realize nobody's going to come and steal out of our garage and drag across the ashen field of hell our salvation because nobody can take it away. That the gift You've given us is not going to break and fall apart and become ineffective. That there's not going to come a point to where it's not glorious. So Lord Jesus, we look forward to today when You reveal Yourself and we can look in the face of He who has given us the greatest gift of all times. Lord, do a work this morning in us. Sustain us through the Christmas season. Let us take the word that we've heard and share it with our friends so they know the power of a living hope and a standing inheritance that cannot be taken away. Lord, we ask and pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.